All right, let's take our Bibles this morning and turn to Hebrews chapter 13. Looking at the end of this book, this great uh, message uh, that was written actually in manuscript to be preached, but from certain circumstances that took place, the one who wrote it sent it by letter and was hoping to come back to them and have fellowship with them. We learned that already in the Word of God. But today we're going to be looking at Hebrews 13, verses 20 and 21, and it says this, and follow with me as I read, Now the God of peace, who brought up from the dead the great shepherd of the sheep, through the blood of the eternal covenant, even Jesus our Lord, equipped you in every good thing to do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight, through Jesus Christ, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, thank you again for this tremendous privilege to be in the Word of God, to be able to see it with our own eyes and hear it with our own ears and think about it with our own minds, the very things that you want us to know while we're present on this earth so we can live for the purpose in which you saved us, so we can do your will, so we can please you. Lord, enable us to do that and understand that more today from this passage. And I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. I've been saying that acceptable Christian worship is that which pleases God. We already saw that the reason all believers are to offer up spiritual sacrifices and the reason spiritual church leaders and congregation are to harmonize with each other is because it pleases God. It is appropriate, though. It's appropriate, at, at least at the end of a correspondence like this, to any church, that the most important things would now be considered for church leaders and congregation of like. And that is the things that bring to light our dependence and our dependent state as Christians and the two inseparable spiritual responsibilities that we have as a congregation or any church that ha would have as a congregation, and that would be to attend earnestly to the Word of God because through the Word of God, God speaks to us and teaches us and transforms our mind and then secondly, to engage earnestly in prayer through which we speak to God. But it's more than just speaking to God, and we're going to find that out this morning. The great need for, the, for church leaders is to be supported by the prayers of their people, by the prayers of their sheep. And then also for church leaders to support their sheep in prayer that should always be and remain the highest importance in the church if these two things go south then you just got to have a you just have a social club that's all you have because these th these two things are the, the most important things in the church prayer and preaching are the most important things in the church for what reason though the reason is that our work for Christ can be effective, but also so that you may become fruit-bearing. That apart from the Word of God, apart from prayer, you cannot become fruit-bearing. So that is when we are mutually delighting in prayer together and we are mutually loving and being obedient to the word of God then things happen people grow in Christ people get saved God's word goes out God's glorified so we as a congregation ought to listen to God from his word 
preached, taught, read. And we as a congregation ought to pray to our great God and Savior with lips of praise and thanksgiving and adoration, along with requests of all types, intercessions for others and petitions for ourselves. Why? Because Jesus Christ has a great regard to the prayers of his people. He loves when we pray. And the devil laughs when we don't. Because even he knows the power there is in prayer when God's people lift it up with sincere hearts to him. So the author of this message and those with him have humbly requested prayer because in verse 18, look, with it, look at it with me, it said pray for us. That's where he started out. Pray for us. For we are sure that you have a good conscience desiring your con to conduct ourselves honorably in all things, and I urge you all the more do this so that I may be restored to you the sooner. Obviously, this writer uh, was part of the congregation and was removed from the congregation for some reason, not given in the, this epistle, and now he wants to come back to them, but... He knows he can if his people pray him back. Pray them back if it was a team. So he says, pray for us. And remember, we're talking about acceptable worship, and that includes our approach to God. And this means if anyone is going to approach God acceptably in prayer, they must have a good conscience. And I covered what that was and how you receive it last time, the last couple of messages. And then they must have willingly they must willingly live honestly in all things and we look at that uh looked at that so it should be clear in your mind about what we have in christ and that is a good conscience and it should also be clear in your mind what you are to do that is you have a strong now intention to conduct your life honorably before god which shows that you really understand as a follower of Jesus Christ, you have been summoned to holiness of life. You have been summoned to a whole different thing than you knew before. Matter of fact, you couldn't live it before, but now you can. And that should bring your mind back to Hebrews chapter 12. And if you look at verse number 14, remember when we were back there, it says this, pursue peace with all men, and the sanctification without which no one will see the Lord. In other words, actually, holiness is to be prayed for. Here we saw holiness is to be pursued. And the reason why back there, when I was in that text, was that because holiness is required for our well-being. Remember, God's goal when he disciplines us in the context of of chapter 12 so that we may share in his holiness verse 10 of chapter 12 and that's the goal he does correct us drive out the sin that still is in us but only in order that we may be truly the children that god would have us to be and be sure of this he would have us to be holy god has called us to be holy, not to live an unclean or an impure life like Thessalonians says, for God has not called us to impurity, but to holiness, to sanctification. And holiness means those who are different because they've come to Christ. Those who have been set apart to God. And so the holiness that comes to us is an essential character all attribute of the character of god already and as we are dwelt with the spirit of god that character begins to work out through us we are to be holy like god is holy that's what makes us so different so we're called to and must earnestly strive for personal and practical holiness and that means believers are to be set apart from evil 
but separated to God, consecrated, and entirely given over to his service. Ultimately, that's what God's doing. He's entirely giving you over to his service as you cooperate with him. Also, holiness is necessary for effective service. From 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 21, Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from what is dishonorable, he will be a vessel for honorable use, and here it is, set apart as holy, useful to the master of, his, of the house, ready for every good work. So these are tied together. Prayer and holiness and the word of God are all tied together. And then there was a third thing, why holiness was necessary in our life, it gives us assurance of salvation. It bolsters our, it gives us boldness to say, I am a child of God. So the only safe evidence that we are in Christ is a holy life. If you know nothing about holiness, if you don't even know what I'm talking about, you shouldn't flatter yourself you're a Christian. The bottom line is this. It is not those who profess to know Christ who will enter heaven, but those who live holy lives. It doesn't mean they don't have a profession. They do. But it's coupled with a holy life. Because you're called to salvation and also to holiness, to blamelessness. So in fact, you can't even see the Lord without holiness, according to Hebrews 12, 14. You can't even see the Lord. You can't make it into his presence if you haven't been set apart by him. So set apart Christians are to reflect attitudes and behaviors consistent with our new relationship with God in Christ. So, uh, so the admonition is keep pursuing a life that is more and more set apart to the Lord. But how do I do that? One way you do it is definitely by prayer, I tell you that. It includes corporate and individual prayers of the saints. Now, I've been saying along the way through Hebrews that as our knowledge increases about God, that automatically our faith increases in God. And that leads to our prayer life becomes more dependent on God. It leads us to a deeper, more abiding, consistent, Christ-exalting prayer life. And then, at that point, we become fully persuaded about at least two things. Number one, that all blessings you and I stand in need of could be obtained from God and from God alone. Yes, everything we need for life and godliness can be obtained from God and from God alone. And secondly, that prayer is the appointed means of obtaining these blessings. God is the one who said that. And sometimes we wonder, why is my faith weak and passionless? Why is that? Why don't I see myself growing in the Lord? Well, because we don't do a very good job in the area of prayer. We don't set aside prayer as a serious thing, as, a, as something that ought to be a discipline in our life and constant in our life. We don't do that. We don't do it well. It's something we're always fighting against. But we ought, in this new year, I've been challenging you to read through the Scripture in a year. Hopefully, some of you are coming to the last chapters in the one-year Bible program, and you're, you may have missed a couple days or some time during it, but you got back on track, and you're still moving through it. I pray that for some of you. Maybe some of you didn't do so well, but it's a new year, right? Start it again. Let's do it. Let's work through our way until we overcome the flesh. Until we get the Word of God, we're reading the Word of God, it's getting into us. 
All right. Now, let's look at our, our passage of Scripture, verse number 20. First is, is in the context, we, we, we want to take a close, closer look at the object of our prayer. And, and this is how he ends this benediction, this ending uh, statement about what he's telling the church. And so he, the object of, of prayer, of course, if you notice in verse number 20, now the God of what? Peace. We are coming in prayer to the God of peace. We know that. We're convinced of it. He's not our enemy anymore. He is not against us anymore because of Christ. That is the only reason, because of Christ. So we come to the God of peace through Christ. There is no other way to come. You can't devise another way to come to God. That's the whole book of Hebrews. The only way to come to the God of peace, if He is the God of peace for you, is through Christ. That's how He becomes. He is always the God of peace, but for you, you're at peace with Him, who is the God of peace, through Christ. So He is the one who can lead us in the way of peace. And He is good in this sense. He did not have to make peace with any of us rebels. He had acquired for us a good conscience so that we can be at peace with God. And this peace is that which was already won for us through the sacrificial death of Jesus Christ. As Paul told the Romans... Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And in the Hebrew culture, this very term shalom or peace meant everything which makes for man's highest good. That's what they mean when they say shalom. So it means for us that God has his utmost good in mind especially that of a tranquil tranquil state of a soul assured of the salvation that they received through Jesus Christ. So we don't have to fear anything when we come to God. Why? He's the God at peace. We are at peace with Him. Like in the Gospel of John, chapter 16, verse 33, these things I have spoken to you so that in me you may have peace in the world you have tribulation but take courage i have overcome the world so the first thing he's telling us here listen you come to a god who has a character and the first part of his character is he is a good god and you're at peace with him a second thing he says in verse number 20 is that you who it says who brought up from the dead the great shepherd of the sheep. So he's a mighty God, he's saying here. He's a mighty God. The term here is not the common one actually used for resurrection. That's why he, he words it like this, who brought up from the dead. He doesn't use the word rise here like he normally would, but he uses the word, a term to lead out, to bring up in the sense, the term is used for the powerful intervention of God. God's leading out His people through the leading out, to the bringing Jesus out from the dead that will bring many sons to glory, the beginning of Hebrews. That's what He's doing. He's bringing many sons to glory. So the death of Christ, if He had not risen, could not have completed our redemption, and we would have been yet still in our sins. But he's completed our redemption, and why, does he, why has he done that? Because he is a mighty God who leads his people out from the slave market of sin to be freed, to have a relationship with God. So if God brought Jesus up from the dead, such an unbeatable God has no problem answering our prayers. None of our impossibilities, none of our problems or our difficulties, our difficulties can be greater than the problem of leading one out of the realm of the dead. 
and then victoriously giving life. There's, there's no greater problem than that. The greatest enemy we have is death. No one has ever conquered it. No one has ever overcome it. No one has ever escaped it. But Jesus Christ has. He's not only overcome it, escaped it, but he has also defeated it. He has put it finally to death. It's done, along with Satan, who uses it to cause fear in people. So he's a mighty God. The third thing is that he's a compassionate God. In verse number 20, he says this, who brought up from the dead the great shepherd of the sheep. Now keep in mind that the shepherd, or a shepherd in the Old Testament and New Testament, denotes one who presides over a collection of people, or in animals in that case, but in this case, people who are called sheep, and governs and guides and protects them for the purpose of doing everything necessary to promoting their joy. So he is the only great shepherd. And he's not only the great shepherd. In John chapter 10, he's the good shepherd who gave his life for the sheep. So the good shepherd submits to death as a victim for us. So he is a compassionate God. And no one is as caring and compassionate as the great shepherd who cares for his under-shepherds and the whole flock of God. By his risen power, he continues to provide a double security for his sheep. And what is that double security? Well, in John chapter 10, in verse 27 through 29, it says, My sheep hear my voice. And I know them, and they follow me, and I give eternal life to them, and that they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. And then in verse 20, it says, My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. So here he stresses that Jesus is the great leader of the sheep, that Jesus has us in his hand and the Father has his hand cuffed over Jesus' hand, giving us the picture that no one, no one can snatch us from God. No one can snatch us from this shepherd. No wolf can destroy and come in and get these sheep because they are protected by the good shepherd, the good leader of the sheep. Moses and David in the Old Testament are viewed as shepherds who care for and led God's sheep but Jesus is the one who surpasses all leaders and takes and leads his sheep where no one could lead them. And that's right into the presence of God. No one could do that, but Jesus does it. So he is a compassionate God. And then he is also, verse number 20 of Hebrews 13, he is a faithful God because it mentions the blood of of the eternal covenant, even Jesus our Lord. Remember, covenant has been a great subject in the book of Hebrews, and if someone makes a covenant well, the covenant is only as good as the faithfulness of the one who made the promise. So it was through the new covenant that made possible the new relationship between God and man. The new covenant Jesus secures spiritual and eternal blessing for the guilty and depraved children of men. And because Jesus demonstrates this love at the cross where the covenant had to be ratified, where it says here, through his blood, it was through the blood of Christ, the one-time sacrifice that this covenant was ratified, then Paul can write in Romans 5, but God demonstrates his own love us in that while we were yet sinners Christ died for us so in his substitutionary death he took away the terror of God forever and he does that by pacifying the wrath of God that the God of peace was in Christ reconciling the world to himself not imputing to men their trespasses seeing he has made him to be sin for us who knew no sin that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. So we come to God 
through Jesus alone. And we find favor with God in that approach. And there's no other approach we can find favor with God. In fact, without Jesus, it is dangerous to approach the God who is the consuming fire. So those who have their own self-styled way of approaching God, by their own religious system, or own philosophical uh, ways of life that they designed in their own mind, they think that, I don't need Christ, I don't need the cross, I don't need any of that, I have my own way of doing it, they are going to be in for a rude awakening because they are not going to meet with the God of peace, they are going to meet with the God of wrath. So see, Jesus has forever taken away from us the terror of God. The sheep doesn't have to be afraid of the shepherd. If the the sheep were afraid of the shepherd, they run, right? So see, the point of the shepherd and the sheep is the shepherd so treats the sheep so they never think the shepherd is against them or is going to harm them. And if he, even if he does discipline them, it's always for their good so they don't do something wrong or they don't veer off the path or they don't get too close to the cliff. See, that's what a shepherd does and that's who Jesus Christ is. And so, see, to have in our mind the very character of God in prayer is so important because, you know, we come sometime in prayer with great guilt on our conscience because of our sin. And we feel like either God left us, God's against us, God's going to condemn us in it. See, in Christ, none of that's there anymore. We come to a God of peace. Whatever we have and whatever we've done, and we know that at the cross it was all taken care of, so I never come to God being afraid of Him. But I come to God boldly because of what Christ has done. But I come also humbly. Because sin is still a serious matter for a believer, maybe more serious because we've offended God, right? We've sinned against God. We want to get that right, that the blood of Christ does cleanse us from that sin and all unrighteousness. And so that's what we ought to be involved with as we are praying too. Part of prayer is praying for you, man. Praying for yourself because you're a mess. I'm a mess inside. I need Christ to clean me up, to make me like him. That's a huge project. You realize that? That's a huge project. This is a major construction site. You're not just under construction. It's major construction. And that's what he's doing. So see, as you're a mess coming to God as a believer, you're not afraid of God. But remember, you're coming to him with a sincere heart. You're coming to him just like you are. Lord, this is the sin I'm struggling with. Lord, this is what's going on in my life. Lord, this is what's making me anxious and worried. These are the things that, and you you pray for yourself too. That's part of it. See, sanctification and prayer go together. So now we come, that that was the object of our prayer, God himself. And now we come to the very content of the prayer. In verse number 21, see, now the author of this letter offers prayers on behalf of his sheep. He had them pray for him. Now he prays for them, but he wants to make them sure, again, who they're coming to in prayer and through whom they're coming to prayer in, and that's Christ. And he prays that his Christian brothers and sisters would be made complete for the master's use and finish the Christian race well. And so the content of the prayer is found in verse 21, and we're going to look at that, and it's this. A prayer for the sheep to reach the goal, and notice what it says, and I'll put this in front of it, that the God of peace, verse 21, equipped you in every good thing to do his will. So here's the prayer that he has for the sheep. He's praying to God that God would equip you In fact, the verb equipped, as I was studying, is, is, has a rare mood connected to it. It's called the optative mood. The optative mood is, 
is only used about 70 times in the New Testament. And in our passage, it's used to express an obtainable wish or a prayer. And it is frequently used to appeal to someone's will. In particular, when used in prayers. For example, it is usually used when using a polite request. A polite request without necessarily a hint of doubting what the response will be for you know we have a similar usage in our in our language about uh of a polite request uh for example if a, if a mother uh ask asks her children do you think you might be able to help me with the dishes tonight that's kind of like a optative mood you think you might be able to help me tonight with the dishes now, usually the response is going to be, with, with a request like that, it should be yes. But if you say, please help me with the dishes, well, that's not optative, that's command. That's command mode, and so here we don't have a command. Remember, a lot of commands in Hebrews, but here, before God, asking for God to equip the sheep, he uses a wish the optative is used in the language of prayer to often refer to a prayer wish. And the prayer wish here in our passage is addressed to God whom Scripture just described. And wouldn't you want to pray to a God like this? Yes, you would. So prayers offered to false gods of ancient times could expect to be haggled over, rebuffed, or left unanswered but the god of the new testament is bigger than all that the prayers offered to him depend on his sovereignty and his goodness who he is so when prayer is offered to god who raised jesus from the dead its meaning is often moved into the realm of expectation so a optative request is that of expecting a result because of the way you say it and, of course, in this case, because of the character of the one you're saying it to, God himself. If this is God's will, and I pray this, then I expect God to answer his will. And what is his will? That you and I would be equipped. Equipped. If any uncertainty is part of the package of prayer... It is not due to questions of God's ability, I'll tell you that, but simply to the petitioner's humility before the great shepherd of the sheep. So the prayer request is offered to God without a hint of doubting what the response would be. Now, doesn't that sound like faith? It's, it's kind of a faith request. Coming to God who is knowing that he is rewarder of those who diligently seek him. Somebody who is engaging God in prayer is diligently seeking Him. Asking Him something. Communicating with Him. So there, there are several prayer wishes in our passage. And the first one is this. It says that God's going to equip you or outfit you or put you into a proper condition. The request conveys the writer's desire that the believers might be fully fitted for the task. It's actually the same term used in Hebrews 11.3 where he says, and the worlds were framed by the word of God. In other words, that the worlds were arranged, put into order from a chaotic state, and then fitted to perform their several purposes that we experience today so that's what god is doing he's equipping you and i however he may to do what he created you to do and to allow you to use the gifts he has given you in the church to do his will so see the end result is that you would do the will of god of course a second prayer wish is the verb form and it is God who, who uh, restores and repairs and mends someone. It's included in the word. Or to set what is out of order right. 
In other words, to equip you in every good thing to do his will. And must, much of us who have come to Christ have been out of order. We are not working spiritually. If you ever come to a soda machine and you see the sign on it, out of order, you don't feel very good about it. Especially if you're very thirsty. See, you and me were out of order when it came to our relationship with God. We were not useful to God. We really had no purpose uh, for being used by God. We were by nature unfit to obey the divine will. We were by nature unfit for knowing the divine will. We were by nature unfit for desiring the God, the God's will. And we were especially unfit for loving God's will. And of course, that, that would conclude that we would not be able to do God's will. So once we become a believer, now God, what he is doing, that the great shepherd who leads us is, is not only able to supply what is necessary to do his will and make us fit for it, but is also able to repair what has been broken in our life and refit us so we can be usable like a battleship is fitted with all the necessarily necessary equipment guns and personnel to go into a battle to be used for its very purpose to fight the battle and ultimately win the battle so you and i as believers would be fitted by god with the necessary things to be able to accomplish his will and without God's help, we can do nothing. The will of God is our sanctification, body, soul, and spirit. And sanctification is that we become, as I started out, holy. The Holy Spirit is the author of our being set apart to God and bringing us to live righteously. He does this by showing us what the will of God actually is. So here's the prayer. Lord, I pray that these people would be fitted to do your will and that what was broken or what needs to be mended in their life and inside of them would be mended so they can actually not only understand your will, identify your will for them, but actually do your will. And then, secondly, he says this in verse number 21 notice what he says here equipped you in every good thing to do his will working in us that which is pleasing in his sight so here's a prayer that god would work in us to bring us to the goal now you see the goal is that we would live pleasing in his sight, according to this passage. The goal of the Christian life is righteousness. The Holy Spirit is cleaning us up. That's what he's doing. He's, he's making changes in our lives. Remember, it was something that was broken or, or crooked. He's bringing us into conformity to the will of God. So God is working in us by the Spirit of God. So conformity happens from the inside out, we are changed from the inside out. That's a very, very important point here. And I believe stressed in this passage of Scripture, he's working in us. And I believe he's doing that because God wants us to see fruit of what the Spirit of God is doing on the inside. So prayer is about fruit bearing. Prayer is about fruit bearing. And it's about fruit bearing. So we're sanctified so that we will do what is right and what is pleasing to God before the watching eyes of the Lord. Lord, make me more loving. Lord, make me more kind. 
Lord, make me more gentle. Lord, make me more joyful. Lord, make me more long-suffering with people. And patient in circumstances. Make me like that. God has to do that from the inside. See, behavior is at the center of concern and sanctification. Behavior shows what is or what is not going on on the inside of you. So as God works in you, according to this passage of Scripture, He's working in you in a way where He'll work out of you. How's the Spirit of God working on you in your life? Now, no internal transformation may mean a professor may be masquerading around with righteous behavior, but with no internal change. That's hypocrisy. In fact, hypocrites totally externalize righteousness. You can live on the outside clean. We can clean up the outside, right? We can clean up well on the outside. That's what the Pharisees did. That's why the Lord called them, uh, you know, inside you have dead men's bones. But outside you look pretty clean. You clean the outside of the plate, but the inside you didn't do anything with. See, a believer is someone who has been already given a good conscience has been washed in the blood of Christ and made clean and given a new heart. And so therefore, God is working in us first to give us a new heart and a new conscience. Then we have good behavior. Then, we, then we're changed. So the Holy Spirit is inside of us to produce good fruit. Lord, make me more fruit-bearing that I may please you. That's a good prayer. You know, make me more fruit-bearing, Lord. This next year, we have another opportunity for us to come to the Lord in prayer. And remember, this is me asking God for you to make you more fruit-bearing and loving and kind and gentle and, and, love and, and long-suffering and all those things, and that's for you to pray for me too. But if you don't pray for me, and I don't pray for you, and the elders don't pray for you, then you know what? We're not using the very means God's given us, so we actually are mended and transformed on the inside so we can manifest behavior that's not hypocritical, but that's actually genuine, that comes from the depth of your heart because of your your relationship with God to other people. See, that's where God's bringing us. So what does the Holy Spirit use to change us? Well, he convicts us about what's wrong and what's evil before God, what doesn't please God. He also convicts us about what's right, what's pleasing. That, that is conviction of the knowledge of what is right and good and pleasing in God's sight. And don't we all want to know what is pleasing in God's sight? Isn't that a major factor in a believer. I just want to do things that are pleasing to you, Lord. Until you're convinced by them. Even John said about the Spirit of God that he would, when he comes, convict the world of sin, of righteousness, and of judgment. One of the things he's convicting of is righteous living. So how can you do what is right and pleasing to God if you have no idea what is right and pleasing to God? When you become a believer, it's not just a matter of prayer. That is important. Remember, it's a matter of also the Word of God. The Holy Spirit will change the whole mode of your thinking and even feeling to conform to the will of God. And He does not do this miraculously implanting in you this mode of thinking and feeling. He doesn't do it that way. The Holy Spirit addresses your mind. Never bypasses your mind. And to get to your mind, He informs your understanding with the truth. And the Spirit is not only the Holy Spirit, 
But he is also, according to John 16, 6, the spirit of truth. The Holy Spirit has written the word of God and given us the word of God and meticulously has used language to give us the mind of God for this time in which we live. And he's, he's working on our consciousness with truth. That's what God's doing. This is not foreign to other parts of the Word of God. In Romans 12, 2, he says, And do not be conformed to this world, but be what? Transformed by the renewing of your mind. So, why? So that you may prove what is the will of God, right? The good and acceptable and the perfect will of God. And then in 1 Corinthians 14, 20, Brethren, do not be children in your thinking. Don't be children in your thinking. In fact, he's saying there, listen, stop acting like babies in your spiritual life. Don't remain as a baby. Start growing up. In fact, he goes on to say, don't be children in your thinking. But then he says this, yet be infants when it comes to evil. When it comes to evil, you don't have to study evil. You don't have to do that. So, brethren, do not be children in your thinking, yet in evil be infants. And then he says this, but in your thinking be mature. So the Spirit of God is not bypassing your mind. He's transforming your mind with the truth of the Word of God, and he's making you mature in Christ. So people, actually in our day, they're... they're they're really despising the instruction of the mind by the Word of God. See, if the Word of God gets finally pushed out, we say, oh yeah, we believe the Bible, no one denies believing the Bible, but then we don't use the Bible, we don't have the Bible preached to us, taught to us, we don't read the Bible, and so it's really not transforming our mind, it's really not setting us apart like God intended to, and so our thinking is not transformed, and therefore our maturity is not there. See, we live in an age of anti-meat. 1 Corinthians 2, chapter 3, verse 2. I gave, milk, I gave you milk to drink, not solid food, Paul said. For you were not yet able to receive it. Indeed, even now you're not yet able. He's, that's a rebuke. He's rebuking them because they're not growing as they ought to. And then he says this, for you are still fleshy, fleshly. And then he mentions, by the word of God, the very things that are holding them back from being mature. And this is what he says, for you, for since, then he says, for you are still fleshly, for since there is jealousy and strife among you. Hey, you guys, uh, you're not getting rid of the strife among you. You're not getting rid of the jealousy among you. and You're not actually doing what God says to do. And so therefore, I can't even give you the next step. I can't give you the next level of spiritual training because you're not even getting out of level one. Well, let's get to Christianity 404 instead of 101. The Holy Spirit in you convicts you and points out sin by the Word of God so you deal with them. See, that's our responsibility. The Word of God comes to us. We're responsible to take care of how the Word of God, if we're listening, right? If we're listening, we can discern Hebrews chapter 5, good and evil, and so therefore I can know as the Word of God comes, and every Sunday when the Word of God's preached, you're sitting there, but the Holy Spirit of God's doing different things in your mind, in your life. You know, there's things going on secretly in your life I don't know about. Uh, maybe no one else knows about, but you know about it. And I tell you what, God knows about it because if you notice the passage of Scripture in verse number 21, it says, working in us that which is pleasing in His sight. We're living before God. See, that's a transforming truth. To get up every day and know that everything I think Everything that I endeavor to do, every word I, I s- comes out of my mouth, I do it before God's eyes. You can't hide anything. 
See, that's the sincerity of heart comes in. I already know that because of the God in whom I serve and what he has done in my behalf. So I'm not going to try to pull the wool over. Can't do it. You're just lying to yourself. That's why John says those who say they don't sin deceives themselves, right? You know, I think the greatest deception is self-deception. I really do. I'm more convinced of that than ever in the ministry. We, We love to deceive ourselves. So you get rid of the jealousy and the strife in 1 Corinthians, and then you can move on. So God does not bypass our intelligent and moral natures. In his word, he has given us a plain, well-accredited revelation of his mind. In other words, this is what I want you to do. This is how I want you to be. This is what I don't want you to do. God, that's pretty clear in Scripture. Much of Scripture is prescriptive, right? Telling us what God's mind is, what pleases Him. And by the necessary influence of the Holy Spirit upon us, He leads us to understand it and then to believe the revelation that we hear and grasp so that the revealed mind of God becomes your mind and your will is brought into accordance with his will. That's the point. That's what God's doing on you. That's what he's doing on me. But it's not part, apart from prayer or the word. So if you keep yourself from those things, this, ne- this will never happen. And if you keep yourself away from them things, I- I'm wondering where you are in the first place. So if you look in verse number 21 of Hebrews three uh, 13, it says this. He works in us that which is pleasing in his sight. So his working in us is necessary to enable us to both to will and to do. It's not just the understanding, it's the doing of it too. And it's the doing of it in the presence of God. Because remember, worship is learning how to please God. I don't just worship when we sing songs on Sunday morning. I worship on Monday, too. I worship driving in my car. I worship, you worship when you go to the supermarket. You worship everywhere you go because you're God's representative on earth to others. You are the very vessel God wants to use to bring to them a character that they don't see in other people because you know Christ. And Christ is transforming you. And you're not what you used to be. And the word of God transforms us so we develop deep biblical convictions. And then my conscience and your conscience will not allow us or me to live against my convictions. Which comes from a transformed mind. So we desire in the end to do what is right and to live in a pleasing manner before the Lord Jesus Christ. So prayer is for sanctification. Prayer is for change. Prayer is for power. Prayer is for the battle against the devil. Prayer is for all those things and more. In fact, if you care to look at verse 21, you'll see this at the end of the verse. All this is done can only be done, notice what it says, through Jesus Christ. It only can be done through Jesus Christ. You can only approach God with favor through Jesus Christ. That's the great stress there. And not only that, you know what prayer is? You know what the aim of prayer is? The aim of transformation is to bring glory to God. And that I believe that's why he is ending it like this. Look what he says, through Jesus Christ, look, to whom be glory forever, amen. So the end of all life and prayer is doxology. Giving glory to God. And when, when prayer is set aside, God's outlawed. When prayer becomes an unfamiliar exercise amongst his so-called people, then God himself becomes a stranger to those people. 
But when prayer is a familiar exercise among God's people, then it ends in doxology. It ends in us giving God the glory. So we ought to, we ought to set aside this year serious discipline and a consistent time of prayer. Because it is for, prayer is for putting you in order. It's for mending you. It's for changing you. It's for conforming you to the mind of God's will. And it's for fruit bearing. All those things happen when we pray. And if we don't pray, then we're left to our fleshly decisions on things. And we, we're, we don't have any transformation. We just are, get caught in this rut. So we bring glory to God. And, when we, when, and doxology is really, really should be spoken. We, we can praise God with our, our lips. But it's also, we praise God with our life. That's doxology too. To do that which is, honors him in the conduct of our life to do that which is pleasing in his sight to do that which brings glory to the one whom it is due let thy will be done on earth as it's done in heaven that is the prayer of the saint that means though when we pray Lord change me when we pray Lord make me more kind loving gentle long-suffering, when we prayed that, then look for God to change that. Because that's God's will. So I'm praying in God's will when I'm asking God to change me. When I'm asking God to change you. When I'm asking God to sanctify our people. Don't let them, let them get stuck in a rut. Let their lives glorify Christ. Let their lives exalt Christ. Let their lives exalt and display what is right before God, what is pleasing before God, what honors God, and all those things. So, using um, three points from one person that I have respect for and has written on prayer, he says this. Make it a point every day to pray. And don't leave it to chance. Pick a time, pick a place, and show up. See, good intentions don't work when it comes to prayer. That's simple to do, isn't it? It sounds simple. It's not so simple. But I tell you what, if it is God's will for you to be there, and don't ever look at prayer as something that is a duty in the sense somebody would call it legalistic because you have this prayer time. No, it's not what we're talking about. We're far from that kind of thinking. But here is God's people disciplining themselves for godliness setting aside not only a time for prayer where they have a time, a place, and they actually desire greatly to show up for it, even though when you desire to show up, you're struggling with your flesh. You're struggling with your schedules. You're struggling with what the world thinks, what your family thinks, what your family's doing. You're struggling with good things that are going on all around you. You're struggling with that. You know, when you go to prayer sometimes, you go earnestly to it, and then five minutes into your prayer, you're thinking about all the things you have to do that day. Or some person you have to meet with, and you don't want to meet with them. And you just, and so you get sidetracked, because the devil don't want you to pray. That's why a second thing that he suggests is this. Combine your prayer with reading your Bible. Why is that? So your mind doesn't wander so quickly. 
So if you're reading Scripture, that in that Scripture you're getting something about the character of God, something about the plan of God, something about sin in a group of people, or how God responded to a particular group of people, and you begin to have your mind move to a place where you're thinking biblically, you're thinking things that you would not not normally think if you were not reading the Bible. So you should combine that with your prayer time. And then a third thing that he suggests is this, that you ought to pray possibly in this way. You start with yourself. You examine your heart. And you pray for your own sanctification. You pray for what you're struggling with, what you're worrying about. You're praying where you see yourself fall short spiritually. You may even be praying, Lord, keep me praying. Keep me reading. Keep me faithful. And then it would move on to your family. And you would be praying for either the salvation, the sanctification of your family members, or issues going on within uh, and around your family. And then you would move to your church, praying for the elders and the deacons. All right, I would be praying for now you uh, and your needs as a congregation, some of the things that I know about what's going on in your life, and bring them before the Lord and ask the Lord to be working in your life, to be showing you His will, to be uh, equipping you for doing His work to, so you can please Him, so you can have joy in your heart, so you can know that when you come to God, you're coming to a God of peace, so you can experience that as reality as a believer, that it's not something far out there or something you read in the biography of some great saint of the past. It's about you. It's about what God's doing in your life, in my life. And that's what we can share. So we pray for those things, and then we move out globally. We pray for our missions. We pray for our, our own personal missionaries, what they're doing in the world and the struggles that they're going, uh, going on with. And, and then even maybe evangelizing, too, to a group of people. I, I still have Muslim people on my heart. Every day I think about it. Um, since I was in Algeria even before that, but it just intensifies. There's Muslim people all around here. We need to reach them. I'm praying for that. I'm asking God to show us a way, give us an open door, help us to penetrate, to know how to get in there and share with them the gospel of Jesus Christ. They're not praying to the same God. They're not praying to the God of our Lord Jesus Christ. So that means if they're not praying to him, they're praying to a false God, even though they think it's the true God, and even though they call him the creator God. So see, you pray globally, and then you pray for the rest of the world, I guess, if you have time. So th- these, are, these are so necessary. Prayer is like Breathing. Do you have to breathe? You don't really have to breathe. But you're not going to be around very long if you don't, right? When I was scuba diving, and we went down to 120 feet, which was pretty, a pretty deep dive. We were diving a shipwreck. I wouldn't dare think of diving that deep without my air tanks. That's suicide. You would never, you would never last. See, so those tanks were necessary sustaining my life and bringing me back up to the surface so I can live a little longer. See, that's how prayer is. You, this is not a give or take thing. This is not if I can fit it in. This is essential to your spiritual growth in life. This is essential to your family. This is essential to our church. This is essential to the evangelism of our community. This is essential to those who are not here yet and haven't heard the gospel yet. It's essential to the highest extent in God's program, this matter of prayer. So I think what I'm going to do, and Dwayne asked me the other day in our elders meeting, what am I going to do after I get done with Hebrews? I said, well, I'm going to Ephesians eventually. But yesterday I'm thinking, after looking at this passage, I'm going to preach on the Lord's Prayer until I get to Ephesians and Matthew. You know why? Because we need it. I need it because this is so essential today that I can't, I can't no longer I can no longer put up with mediocrity in my own life or I can't do it anymore 
ministry and living the Christian life is too difficult without God's power. Right? It's, and, and so therefore, I need it and you need it. But that does mean some things that we're going to have to change. And we're thinking about that now. So I want you to pray along with me. Because I want you to look how he ends the section, verse number 21. He says, to him be glory forever and ever. And then what does he say there? What does he say? Amen, amen. So it ought to be. So let it be. So shall it be. That's what amen means. That's how he ends it. And then let all the people say amen. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for the conviction of the word of God. Lord, now we need your help. We already know it's your will to pray. We already know, Lord, that it's pleasing to you when, when we pray. But we also know, also know, Lord, know that it's what changes us. It's what transforms us to your will and, and moves us to do it. And so, Lord, this next coming year, 2012, I pray, Lord, that every one of us today would walk away with a desire to want to implement the challenge before us. That, Lord, not only our minds would be regularly challenged by your word, but, Lord, we would not be just talking about prayer. That we wouldn't just say that prayer is a good thing to do, but, Lord, that we would actually be doing it and we would be wanting to corporately do it with each other. And I pray, Lord, that we would be faithful this year in our spiritual goals to spend every day with you in prayer. And I pray, Lord, you would enable us to do it. You help us to overcome the battles, the difficulties, the circumstances, the schedules, all the things that are come against us. And I pray, Lord, that we would want to hold that hill. And I pray, Lord, nothing in the world would keep us from it. And we would discipline ourselves to godliness in this way. We know, Lord, that you would give us help to do this. Thank you, Lord Jesus where who you are, being the God of peace. Thank you, Lord, that those serious matters are taken care of by you already. Now, Lord, let us as your children do what is pleasing to you in everyday worship. And I thank you for this and what you'll do in Christ's name. Amen.